you know what? Let me give you a little bit of trivia this morning. This morning is the first time Ruth Horsfall has actually led at Life Church Bath since coming back because John and Ruth got here last January and we didn't meet frequently in the building. So, um, Ruth, you're amazing and you've been leading us so wonderfully this morning. Wouldn't you all agree? You can write that on the chat. Shout out to Ruth and thank you so much, guys, playing this morning. I said to the guys before we started, this week has been a very defining week in a number of different ways. One thing that's happened throughout the week is the tide has risen. The tide of our expectation, the tide of how we posture ourselves in prayer and worship. As a church, we've been praying and worshiping continually through this week. And so we're picking up this morning from where we left off. We have the honor um, of having many of Hannah's family and friends watching with us this morning. I wanted to welcome you all personally. It's so good to have you with us, Rob. Uh, we have Hannah's parents, and I hope I say your names right, Karen and Royston and her sisters, Ellie, Abby, and Thea. Apologies if I've mis mispronounced your names, but I just wanted to say welcome to you guys. And um, I wanted to say thank you to you all as well. R Ruth, Ruth mentioned at the beginning of the meeting that a young woman in our church called Hannah went into hospital last week, literally a week ago um, today, and has had a, had a week filled with many different moments, but after they find a, a bleed in her brain, the church was called to prayer, and Hannah's family, Rob, her husband, and Hannah's family have literally gathered the global church in prayer and in declaration over Hannah's life, over her absolute restoration and resurrection. And I wanted to say thank you to you, Rob, and, and to you, Hannah's family, because this is one of those weeks where we as a church are reminded about what it's all about. Sometimes the gospel can become over-familiar in this sense. Imagine if you owned an original Monet, right? An original piece of incredible art. But you only ever looked at this beautiful artwork with your face pressed against it. You know, you were so close to it, all you could see was kind of this one little corner of it. And even that corner you couldn't see very well. So often that's how we live in relationship to the gospel of Jesus. So often that's how we live in respect to the kingdom of God. And then there's these moments that come along in our life where for one reason or another we're forced to take a couple steps back and see the true tapestry of this message. We suddenly see the picture in all its fullness and all its glory. Suddenly in pain and in calamity and in suffering and in confusion, we grasp what the gospel is all about. And this has been one of those weeks. C.S. Lewis famously said, God speaks to us in our, in, a, in our pain like a megaphone to the world, rousing a deaf world, rousing our attention, reminding us. It's been a week of simplification because when you have nothing left, and I know you've heard this before and it almost becomes a cliche, but when you have nothing left but Jesus, there is this realization that Jesus is all we have, and therefore, Jesus. The simplicity of knowing and depending upon Jesus is all we need. All the trappings of the world, all the options that we have, all the other dependencies that we lean upon day to day suddenly disappear. You have a diagnosis, and you have a definitive you know, expectation in relation to that diagnosis, and then you have Jesus. 
and you have this opportunity to choose to depend on one or the other. And as you lean and you depend upon Jesus, you're taking steps back and you're seeing the picture of this glorious gospel anew and afresh. And Hannah's parents and sisters and Rob, her incredible husband, have stood in such a way that the church has been taking steps further and further back and realizing, oh my goodness, you're not just the God who, who, who's there on a Sunday morning or in my devotional times or when I feel inspired or when everything's going well. No, the gospel has suddenly become vivid again. Suddenly songs and stories and poems and prayers about resurrection take on new meaning. Suddenly we're confronted with this question of, do you actually believe this? You know, are you foolish enough in respect to how everyone else might see you? Are you foolish enough to actually believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Or is it just a nice kind of cultural phrase? Is it just a nice thing to belong to? Do you actually believe that there was this man who lived, who performed all these miracles, who testified of who he was, who was killed and then rose again and announced that he is the resurrection and the life and in his name, the kingdom advances. Do you actually believe that? And it seems this week there has been this deafening roar of yes from the global church. Yes, we do. And at the end of this week where many people have literally been praying day and night for Hannah, I just want to say this very, very quickly. This is a topic we could spend weeks on. But our prayers actually matter. Our prayers matter. Prayer can be a confusing, confusing uh, topic. And it's something that we can spend more time talking about. I just want to draw our attention to the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus teaches us his disciples to pray. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For that statement to hold any truth to it, as a prayer, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These two other statements have to be true. God's will is not perfectly manifested upon the earth right now. And also, when we pray, we play the part in advancing it and manifesting it. Jesus taught us to pray in such a way that we would believe, oh, this isn't all playing out to plan. But when we pray, we advance God's kingdom and his will. So when Jesus said, if you speak to the mountain, you know, and you call it to be cast into the sea, that wasn't just to reposition our attitude about the mountain, that we would be changed Though the, though the circumstance around us was impossible to ever change, well, we would be changed. No, no, it wasn't to change our attitude about the mountain. It was actually to cause the mountain to move. So when we pray, we're agreeing, okay, everything isn't playing out as it should have been. And our prayers matter. Amen. All right, so we're, we're, we're on a series at the moment. This is actually part two of the series that we're exploring. It's called One Thing, and it's in this kind of meta series of, around simplify, simplicity. And in, in many ways, this week has been a week of simplicity. It's been a week of returning to what it's all about, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And I want to continue it today in this respect. When I think about simplicity, when I think about simplifying, when I think about a spiritual value, the spiritual discipline of simplicity, the phrase I think about comes from the psalm, Psalm 23, when, when David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
or the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Simplicity as, as a kingdom value, as a virtue of the kingdom, is to say, I have enough, both as a decision and as a declaration. It's a declaration of there will be enough. I'm not just talking about finances. I mean, every respect of our life, there is enough. It's a declaration, but it's also a decision. That's saying what I have right now is enough. That simplifies everything. That's how Paul was able to say, I have been high, I've been low, I've had much, I've had little, and in all things, I am content. I am content, right? Now, wouldn't it be amazing to live in that place? Would you agree to live every day? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I am content. It would be amazing, but it's, it's easy to say it's hard to do. So what I want to do this morning with the time that we have is I want to I Christopher Nolan our scripture reading, and I want to start from the end, and I want to move up to that final verse, and I want to explore. I won't take all morning, but I want to explore how we get to live in such a place of simplicity. You with me? Should we do this? All right, so turn, turn your Bibles to Psalm uh, 23. Some of you might know this off by heart. You might... Uh, you might know this psalm very well, as many people do. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we're going to return to the beginning phrase backwards. So it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil, my cup, it overflows. And he says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the last verse of this psalm says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sometimes you need to know where you're going to end up to make sense of where you are now, right? When all you have around you is trial and tribulation, sometimes you have to have vision of where you're going to make sense of where you are right now. Because right now, and some of you will agree with this, right now doesn't make sense. So that's why it says in Proverbs, without vision, people throw off restraint. If you don't know where you're going, you actually don't know where you are right now. Because where we are right now is in context to where we're going. So when the psalmist says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's making a definitive statement of how his story unfolds. He's saying, this is how it ends. This is where I go. This is the final word of my story. I will dwell with the Lord forever and ever and ever, right? And before he says that, he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy. He could have said, surely God will follow me all the days of my life. But when you say God, every single person in the room thinks of something different. So instead of just saying God will follow me all the days of my life, he describes who God is. Goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy. And you might say, no, no, you know, the, the most defining attribute of who God is, is his majesty. You might say, no, no, God, you can't, just, you can't just call him good. 
We say good all the time. You've got to use a different word. You've got to talk about his glory. We remember the, the story where Moses was before God. And Moses said, God, show me your glory. Right? Because that just, that just sounds right. You're talking to God. Show me your glory, your majesty. And God says, I will cause my goodness. I will cause my goodness to come before you. God defines himself as good. And so what the psalmist is saying is I know where I'm going. I know ultimately where this story ends. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But not only that, every single step of the way, I am defining what I'm walking with, right? Goodness. I'm walking with goodness because who you're walking with defines what you're walking through. And you know this to be true. You know this to be true because when you're going through something and it feels like no one's around you, it's a totally different experience to when you're going through something and it's tangible that people are. So even on a physical, earthly, human, human practical level this week, I've been so encouraged to see Rob and Hannah's family be lifted up every single day, 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. on Zoom calls with hundreds and hundreds of people from different time zones, different cultures, different languages, just pouring into them, praying and interceding for Hannah's life. What they're walking through is being defined by who they're walking with, but that's just humans. It's a whole deeper level when we recognize that whatever we're walking through is defined by the fact we're walking with goodness. And what the psalmist is actually doing here is he's reordering existence. He's reordering the very nature of things. In the God delusion, I remember reading the God delusion when I was, when I was studying, Richard, Richard Dawkins says, there is no good and there is no evil. There is mere indifference. You can't attribute anything in this life with an objective sense of good or evil. It's just indifference. But what the psalmist is saying, no. We don't live in a cold, dry, desolate, indifferent universe, though it may seem like that at times. We live in a world that is ultimately defined by the goodness of God. And so there isn't a circumstance in our life that is void of goodness because in God we live and move and have our being. There's, there's a, there's a uh, line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's going to be a lot of C.S. Lewis quotes this morning, I realize, um, that you might remember. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is a conversation between uh, Susan and Mrs. Beaver. And this is Susan understanding for the first time who Aslan is. She says, Aslan the lion, the great lion. Ooh, ooh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And he's the king. And this is where mercy comes into it. Mercy is when you are treated with kindness, generosity, compassion by someone who has the power to do the opposite. This is why we're reordering the nature of things. For the boxing fans out there, if I was to stand in front of Tyson Fury, who's 6'9", and say, Tyson, I'm choosing not to knock you out, bro. I could, but I'm going to leave you standing. I could knock you out, but I'm going to let you go. That isn't mercy. 
because I'm not capable of doing it. But if Tyson Fury said to me, I'm not going to knock you out, that's mercy because he has the power to do it. So when we call God merciful, what we're saying is the only person in all of the universe, in the cosmos, in all of our life who could actually do us harm, actually do us cosmic harm, has chosen not to. The order of, this, of the universe is set towards goodness and mercy. That's who God is, despite what it may seem, all right? That's what he is like. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in his house forever. That's where we're going, and that's who we're walking with. So then the psalmist says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There is no version of our life, my friends. There is no version of our life that exists without suffering. There is no version of being a human on this planet that doesn't include suffering. Jesus said it. He said, in this life, you will have troubles. You will. You will. He said it to a bunch of men who most of them ended up being executed. You will have troubles. There is no version of this world without trouble. But I have overcome the world, said Jesus. I've overcome the world. This is why Christians, it's so important. Those who testify and follow Jesus, this is where it really matters. This is where you start seeing the bigger picture of the kingdom and the gospel. There is no version of this world without suffering. There is no version of this world without a valley. There is no landscape of your life that exists without a valley in it. In one way or another, of course, the valleys look different and the sufferings look different with different people, but there is no version of your life without valleys. There is no way of denying the fact that we walk through valleys, and I don't need to convince any of you. You've all experienced it already. You don't have to live on this earth long to realize that that's true. The day that I took away the mango finger from my seven-month daughter she realized oh this this world doesn't happen on my terms it starts early and then then the psalmist says though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil let's backtrack okay so there is no version without a valley but he says I will fear no evil how did you get there because if I look at the valleys we've been walking through the correct response would be to fear the evil because it seems very much that the evil is defining our life how can you say that to someone who's suffering? How can you say to someone who's suffering has vision in the valley? It's in, it's, in, it's in, there is a valley. And the valley is the shadow of death. Just stay with me on this real quick. When he says the shadow of death, he's making such a profound statement about the evil that exists in this world. He's saying this, there is the shadow of death. But let's define what a shadow is, right? You know, shadows are the result of, of a light, a source of light being projected. And then an opaque matter, physical matter coming in front of the light and it forming shapes around it. It's how you were able to make shapes on the walls as a kid or as an adult um, to make pictures, right? Because you're using the light source, you're manipulating it with an opaque, not, an, not a transparent, an opaque object, and it's changing the way the light looks. But the shadows, they're, they're not real. They're just getting away in the way of the light. He says it's the valley of the shadow of death because 
just stay with me on this, but the worst thing that could ever happen in our life, if it really is what Dawkins is saying, a cold and a different universe, for it all to end in eternal nothingness, death. I remember my, my philosophy professor said to me, um, said to all of us on the first week of philosophy, he said, philosophy is the escaping of the fear of death using logic and reason. As in, all philosophy has been unto the point of, okay, there is no God, so let's understand how we can escape the fear of death using logic and reason. You can live your life without any fear of death until it gets a little closer. And then you have to face your own mortality. So when the psalmist says, the worst thing that could happen is a shadow, he is redefining the power that evil has in this world. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not this evil, not that evil, not this circumstantial evil. I will fear no evil. Because I believe that Jesus has overcome death. I believe that Jesus has defeated death. So any other worst case scenario from that point on has also been defeated. That's why we're standing with Hannah's family. That's why we're declaring, despite our experiences, that Jesus can bring Hannah into full restoration because he's already defeated death. He came back from death. So anything less than death, which is everything, also has been overcome by Jesus. That's why prayer is important. That's why we keep declaring. That's why when we walk through a valley, we don't make decisions about who God is or the true nature of our life that we wouldn't make outside of the valley. Because when you're looking at a valley from a higher perspective, you don't feel in the, in, in, in the depths of darkness and you don't feel in the, in the suffocating kind of nature that a valley kind of brings to you. You see it completely differently. That's why we announce who God is in the valley as we would on a mountaintop. Because if you define who God is in the valley, you are making an objective decision about God that is ultimately false. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and as I'm reading this, as you all have realized, I've missed out a verse. So we're going to Christopher Nolan this even more <laughs> and tenet the verse and <laughs> jump back and forth. But I'm going to finish on this point and then I'm going to keep going. Uh, James announces that God is the father of lights in whom there are no shifting shadows. So when we choose to believe that death isn't as powerful as we've been told to believe by this world, we are removing that opaque object and we are beginning to see the light for all it truly is. I will fear no evil. One, one point on this before I move on. The level of fear we have often comes in response to where we decide to look. I know this is so simple, but this has held me throughout my life. In Exodus, it says, as the Israelites were about to cross the Red Sea, they heard the Egyptians. It says they looked up, they observed the Egyptians, and they were filled with fear. God had already released them. God had already sent all these miraculous plagues to set them free. They already knew who God was and that he was about to lead them through the Red Sea. But when they looked at the Egyptians, when they beheld only the Egyptians, they were filled with fear. That's why, my friends, that is why it's so important. Rob and his parents and his sisters, everyone who's contending, it's so important that you decide and define where you look. 
that you don't look to, 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 you don't look to what has been decided by human minds. You don't look to your experience, but you keep looking to Jesus. You keep holding on to Jesus' word. Meditate on it day and night, my friends. Please protect yourself. Jesus said, the devil is a liar. In fact, he's the father of lies, and all he can do is lie. So it's the case that often we get caught into a narrative of lies only to find, oh my goodness, none of that was true. And I spent so much time thinking about it. So all we're looking at right now is Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's all we're looking at right now. You can call us foolish. That's all right. That's okay. But this is where we're choosing to live. So let me just jump back down. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and my cup overflows. I'll stop there. Let me just spend a minute on this. In these times of trial and tribulation, let's appreciate what God is doing. God isn't just simply treating us like soldiers getting ready for battle. God is saying to us, the greatest weapon that you have, the greatest weapon you have in this world is worship. It really is. And worship isn't getting a guitar out or putting worship music on. Worship is how you posture yourself. Worship is living in, a, in an expression of gratitude and adoration. That's what it is. And when you do that, you begin feasting surrounded by enemies. <laughs> you begin feasting surrounded by circumstance. It's already difficult. It's already really hard. It's already super, super hard to live this life. Why make it harder? Why make it harder? When you worship, you lean into the eternal truth of where we're going and how this story ends. There's no denying the pain and the tribulation that we're in. And there's an expression for that. You've got to let it out. When I lost my best friend to, to, to cancer a couple years ago, I remember just saying to Kara, I need to punch something. And I went down to a, to a boxing gym just to punch as hard as I could, not a human, a, a punching bag. Um, and I, I just remember, like, that's the only right expression for this moment right now. We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations because God is like, let it out. It sucks. It's so difficult. You're right. This isn't how it should be. It's all gone wrong. God agrees. That's why we pray let your kingdom come and your will be done because this evidently isn't your will. So let's pray about it and let's lament and let's acknowledge how wrong it's been. But don't forget to feast. And when you feast, when you worship, when you remain in a posture of gratitude, you do redefine what's going on around you. You remember the Titanic where the Titanic is sinking and there's a little band of people playing the violins and the cello? That's what we look like in this world often. Despite all that's going on around us, releasing beauty into the world, releasing eternal truths into the world, declaring what is even though it seems so different in front of us. Why play violins when the ship is sinking? Because that's not the only thing that's happening right now. And when we move in acts of redemption, like prayer, or when we move in acts of redemption, like rejoicing or feasting physically on good food, we announce this isn't it. And this isn't how it ends. You anoint my head with oil. Oil 
being a beautiful, sacred, ancient image of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. The oil of Pentecost like we spoke about, who Jesus said is the comforter. Rob, my brother, I pray over you right now that you feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that that would be the oil poured upon you, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And you, my cup overflows. In Jewish culture, the cup and the wine was this image of extravagance and generosity and joy. Ah, uh, could it be that in the garden when Jesus, it said, pray to the Father, take this cup from me, because he was about to drink a cup of suffering, could it be Jesus drunk the cup of suffering for the joy set before him so that in our suffering we could drink from the cup of joy? Could it be that even now, even here in our suffering, we can drink from the cup of joy to the point that it overflows? Why is it overflowing? Maybe because in the, in the expression of our joy, despite what we're going through, which I've seen in you, Rob, I've seen in you, Abby, and all of you, I've seen in you this week, what happens is your cup fills up, it overflows, and then people around you who are suffering and going through the worst case scenario, their cup starts to get filled up. And they start to realize maybe my situation isn't over. Maybe there's such a wild, audacious hope, so real, that this person, despite their suffering, is so convinced about that my situation could get changed as well. That's why testimony is so important. You still with me this morning? Could it be? All right. He leads me by still waters and he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for my name, for his name's sake. Do you know what? When David wrote this, he was appealing to his former life as a shepherd. This isn't random. David is thinking about himself as a shepherd and thinking about the best shepherd he ever could have been, and he's attributing it to God. Even knowing that the most magnificent attribute of you is eclipsed by an infinitely better image that is in Christ. He that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. Jesus embodied the most horrific expression of our humanity so that we could be transformed in his likeness. <laughs> Even our best expression is eclipsed by an undeniable and infinite expression of his goodness. But David knew as a shepherd how to take care of his sheep. He would lead them by green pastures so they could feed, by waters so they could drink, and he would restore them from their weary walks and from whatever was going on. And I'm announcing it over all of you guys in the building and everybody watching, that's what our God is like. David saying, shepherd to shepherd, I know how you treat me. You don't use me like a tool. You don't wring me out. You restore me. Someone sent me a message when we were going through a very painful time, similar to what's been going on this week. And they just said, make sure you sleep as much as you can, even if it's for a couple hours a night, and make sure you eat good food, and make sure you drink lots of water. Make sure you keep yourself well, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's restoring us, even in the most kind of tangible, physical ways. And that's how he leads us. Just coming to the end of this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, if all that I've said is true, genuinely, 
then maybe it's possible to look at a dire situation without only seeing lack, without only seeing the worst of what's happening. There's a, there's a quote I just want to read quickly from Spurgeon about the psalm. Charles Spurgeon, he said, nothing is hurried with God. Nothing is hurried. There is no confusion, no disturbance. Yes, the enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table. And the Christian sit down, sits down and eats as if everything was in perfect peace. Even though I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. Even though I'm surrounded, God, I'm surrounded by you. When you worship in times like this, and hear me out, I'm not talking about music. It's a part of that. But when you choose to wake up every morning like Hannah's family have been and say, let's gather and pray, let's lean into a greater truth, you are torturing the father of lies. Because if we don't believe him, then there is nothing he has on us. If he can't convince us, like he tried to convince Jesus in the desert, if he can't convince us, then he's lost. The devil didn't lose to Jesus at the cross. He lost in the desert, right? He lost when Jesus didn't succumb to his lies. That was the moment it was all over. And it's the same with us. As soon as we choose not to believe that what the devil says is true, it's over. It's over for him. It's over. We're going to sing that refrain. Is that all right, guys? You've sung it many times before, I'm sure. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I do it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because even though I'm surrounded by a circumstance, I'm actually more clearly and more accurately surrounded by you. These are the moments, my friends, where we actually decide and declare what we believe. Is this whole Christianity thing, man, is this just like a... Is this like a cultural thing? Is this something that you just do because people do it? Is it just something you say? Or do you actually believe that death has been defeated? This is, the, this is the, that, that moment. And when we pray and when we worship, we draw closer to the truths that I've been speaking about this morning. We reorder reality. We reorder everything around us. Yeah, let's start singing, guys. just reading words this morning we're not just saying nice phrases this morning there was a young woman lying in a hospital bed in the ICU there is a family that has experienced a deeply traumatic week there is a world on its knees there has been great suffering like many, many generations hadn't experienced around us. And yet, and even now, we're declaring a higher and greater and far loftier truth than even our circumstance present. So as you sing this, sing it with all the pain you feel, all the confusion you feel. feel it with, sing it with the anger you feel and the doubt that you feel. Sing it with the what ifs and the how comes and the whys. Bring it all to the table. And as you sing it, 
allow the truth that you're declaring to ring out, deafening every other voice, deafening the lies, deafening the announcement that death is the end, deafening the end that there's nothing we can do and that this situation is impossible. Let's sing it out, come on. This is how I find